0: Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be here today. We're going to open God's word. And if you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Esther, we're going to be looking at the last part of chapter two, and then we're going to go right through chapter three. So chapter and a half today. uh, So go fairly quickly. But let's uh, let's pray before we start. Just ask God to bless his word. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that it exerts in our life. You said that your word would not return to you void but that it would accomplish what it was sent to do and so lord we pray that this morning your word would accomplish what it was sent to do in our lives lord change our thinking change our, our the way we do life and so lord i pray that your anointing would be on me that i might speak your word in truth and in boldness and we pray lord for all of us that we would hear what your spirit has to say this morning for we ask this in jesus name amen evil what a horrible concept. And yet it seems to be all around us. It pervades in our society. It seems like we're followed by evil all the time. Do you ever feel like evil's kind of lurking nearby? Maybe, you know, sometimes late at night when you're out in a stroll and you just kind of feel like goosebumps on the back of your neck. You just feel like uh evil is here somewhere. Um, do you ever feel like like Satan is after you in particular? You know, like there's a certain messenger from Satan that's just gone right directly from his his kingdom, wherever that might be, and he's coming right to your door and he's knocking on your door, some crazy messenger from Satan. Well, if you feel that way, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul also felt like there was a messenger sent from Satan himself to buffet him. In fact, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. To torment, that's pretty strong language. How many, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, (laughs) but I'm sure there's lots of people here who feel tormented by Satan. They feel like he keeps attacking over and over and over, and things in your life are turned up uh, topsy-turvy and messed up, and it seems like the wrong keeps winning, Um It seems like the wrong is oft so strong, as the hymn writer wrote. And what did did Paul do about it? About this thorn in the flesh? Well, you know, he he got down on his knees and he pleaded with God, Lord, please take this, this thorn in my flesh away. And then another time, Lord, please, please, if you just take this messenger of Satan away. I can't stand it any longer. Just take him away. Help me to do my work in your power. And, and then another time, he's like, Oh, Father, I can't bear the weight of this demonic oppression. Please take it away. And so, here you have an apostle, a man of God, who's pleading. That, next slide. He's, he's pleading with God that God would deliver him. And what does God do? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Somebody said nothing, yeah? <laughs> no, God didn't quite do nothing, but he didn't take the messenger away. He came along and he said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Oh, how nice. My power is made, made perfect in weakness. Uh, not quite what Paul was expecting. Paul was expecting God to come in with power and just remove that messenger of Satan and be done with it. That would be it. But no. But you know, instead of Paul saying, well, thanks for nothing, Paul really actually says, well, okay then. If that's the way it's going to be, then therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight uh, next slide please <clears throat> i delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when i am weak then i am strong do you see what happened here paul's praying desperately pleading with god and god goes oh paul you're you're okay i'm going to be with you it's going to be fine and paul goes okay if you say so then, hey, I got this big weakness, everybody. Isn't that awesome? God's going to work through that weakness somehow. I don't know how, but there's this messenger. Satan keeps attacking me all the time, but hey, it's okay. God is with me. What an awesome change in Paul. And so this morning, I want us to think about how Paul dealt with the messenger from Satan, how Paul dealt with evil in his life. And in fact, he, he comes up with a good reason for this messenger of Satan in his life. He says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited. Huh. You ever thought of that? Maybe the messenger in your life, that from Satan, God is using Satan's power to do some work in your life. To create something in you that is Powerful. That stands up against Satan. Maybe he's creating a circumstances in your life so that you'll put on the armor of God. I don't know. But Paul says, okay, there's a reason for this messenger of Satan. Talk about looking on the bright side. The fact of the matter is that evil is here to stay. This world has been cursed ever since Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God. And a curse has fallen on this world. And there's going to be evil all the time. In fact, some of the evil seems almost seems to come from God. It's like natural disasters. You know, uh, <clears throat> Chuck Swindoll says, Life and pain are, sino- are synonyms. You can't have one without the other. Pain is a fact of life. It's a fallen world, and there's no escaping it. The goal of life is not to escape pain, because it's impossible. The goal of life is to somehow manage our pain, put our faith in God, and to endure it. As someone once said, my pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. You get it? You're going to have pain. You don't have to be miserable, though. Your pain doesn't have to control you. You can control your own life. If you put your life in God's hands, you'll allow God to set about a different path. Uh, we're going to suffer, no doubt. Uh, Job, Job, you know the whole book on suffering? In chapter 14, verse 1, he says, uh, Mortals born of woman are few of days and full of trouble. I, I like the, the living Bible, the way they paraphrase it. How frail is man, how few his days, how full of trouble. Do you ever feel this is written on a depressed day? But probably written in January, you know? <laughs> oh. Well, Job had a good reason to say these things. He, his whole family had been wiped out, wiped out, all his riches taken away. There was a lot of good reason for being down in the dumps. And you're probably saying this morning, Pastor, we come here to be encouraged. You're, you're kind of stressing us out here. It's kind of, you know, this is not why we came to church this morning. Uh, It's February, isn't that bad enough, you know? It's snowing, we had to shovel our driveway, we're already depressed, and now you're just kind of rubbing it in. Yeah, well, sorry about that. But did you catch the misery is optional part? That's the good part, okay? (laughs) You can respond like Job. You can say, though he slay me, still I will trust him. What an awesome statement. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though all this calamity happens to Job, he still turns around and says, You know what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, still I will trust him. And I think this is a a challenge that uh, we can take from today, is that we can be like Job. We can be like Paul and live above our circumstances. Uh, Or we can respond like the hymn writer. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Let's say that together. This is my Father's world. Amen? Amen. He's in charge. He's in control. What an awesome hymn. And that, um, you know, there may be, Natural disasters like tornadoes and floods, volcanoes, earthquakes, monsoons, droughts, hurricanes, mudslides, or maybe in Ottawa, ice storms, blizzards, hailstorms, whatever. Uh, But this is my Father's world. And we will keep that in mind no matter what is being thrown at us. There might be disease. There might be suffering. There might be cancer that's racking someone's body and they're dying from it. But this is my Father's world. Faithful forever. He's going to turn it to good, as we just sang. And then add to the disease and the, the natural disasters the horribleness of people, the tyrants in the world, the wars, ethnic cleansings, The rage, brutality, rape, brutalness of people. It's awful. And people are victims of all kinds of things. And then so often you think, well, at least in our homes there'll be peace. Huh. You know, there's one university in the United States that said that what's more dangerous than living in the middle of a a riot is living in an American home. Oh, wow. That's a scary testimony on our homes, isn't it? It's a dangerous place. So now we've been following the story from the book of Esther for a couple of weeks now. And I've entitled this series, For Such a Time as This. Now, um, this slide, yeah, it's a little too perfect, you know. It's a little too cheery for today's topic. So maybe we should put it more like this. Uh, yes, Okay. <laughs> That sort of depicts the, the topic today. Um, well, we're gonna, But although we do pick up the story, starting in verse 19 to chapter 2, with some beautiful women. And they're all... Uh, so if you, if you turn in your Bibles to uh, Esther, chapter 2, verse 19, um, it starts with some virgins are being assembled. Uh, and, and Mordecai is outside the palace. He's sitting by the palace gate, and uh, Esther's kept her family secret, uh, where, you know, where she's come from and all that, and Mordecai is sitting around by the gate. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting that it talks about Esther keeping her identity secret. You know, we, we're told in the New Testament to not be ashamed of Christ. And that if we're ashamed of Christ, he will be ashamed of us. And it almost seems like Esther's ashamed of her ethnic identity, of her religion, of her faith. I don't think she is. I believe, like Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. And sometimes there's a time to be quiet about your faith until you get into a place, maybe a of uh, power or some place where you can do something about things. But for some time, we need to be silent. And Esther is told, just be quiet about that. But later on, Mordecai challenges her and said, you need to speak up now. Now it's time to speak. And so there needs to be this balance in our life, a time when we're quiet, maybe, and a time when we speak. And I think there's some Christians who really like the time that, they are to be quiet (laughs) and they need a Mordecai in their life to say, okay, now's the time to speak and so let's not go too far that way but let's also not go too far the other way where we're turning people off because we're speaking all the time about God and salvation and people are just shutting us out of their life they just say, I don't want to hear or talk to you don't call me, don't text just be quiet, go away you're bothering me and that's wrong too but God calls us to the correct balance—a time to be quiet and a time to speak. And so Mordecai instructs Esther that it's time to be quiet. <clears throat> and so the story carries on, and, and Mordecai is by the king's gate, and there's a, a couple of thugs there about the king's gate. One's named Big Thana and the other Sherech. I, I mean? This, I mean, we have a Shrek, right, the ogre, <laughs> and this guy's name's almost like Big Thug. These guys, you know, just big, two big dudes by the king's gate. They just sound like thugs, at least in English they do. And uh, so Mordecai is somehow overhears that these two guys are ticked off with King Xerxes. They're just like fuming mad, and they they're decide, okay, well, we're, we got access to the throne, so let's kill King Erx- Xerxes. And so they're plotting this plan. And Mordecai finds out about it. And he goes and he tells Esther. Some probably sends a messenger to her. Or I don't know how he tells her. But she finds out. She tells the king. And the king investigates it. And he, find, he goes out there. And, and sure enough, Bithana and, and are, Shoresh are plotting to kill the king. And so takes them out, has them hung on the gallows. And that's the end of that. Well, so we think. I love the way this story has these little sidelines. Like, like, what does this have to do with the plot, right? Ah, but it'll come back in chapter six and we'll find out why this little tidbit slid in here because it's going to affect the story later on. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> now what would grab the interest of the original readers as they read this? They'd be like, okay, so, uh, wow, he saved the king's life. Saved the Persian king's life? Wow, he's going to get Rewards. He's going to get, you know, lifted up. He's going to get his, uh, he'll be, uh, promoted and he'll get some riches and all this rewards. So what, what does, what does Mordecai get for all of his trouble? uh, uh probably, probably at risk to himself and his own life. He goes through all this trouble to save the king. What does he get? Riches? Honor? Nothing? Well, you know they say that actually to, to these people in this day, when you uh, save the king's life, one of the things is you up rank and then you don't have to bow down to some of the senior officers that are wandering around so this is one of the one of the things, but no, he doesn 't get any of that. What does he get? He gets a write up in the Palace Gazette <laughs> that's it, <laughs> you know. Just somebody says, oh, yeah, somebody did something nice for the king, and, and they publish that, and that's the end of it, you know. It, it kind of reminds me of annual reports, eh? You do all this work, you write all your annual report, and does anybody really read it? You know, I, I was thinking that I should stick in my annual report. First person to read this line gets, and phones me, gets 20 bucks. Just just to see if anybody re- actually reads the thing, you know. Bury that somewhere. It's not in there. <laughs> doesn't mean you shouldn't read the report. But anyway, that's all that Mordecai gets. He just gets a little tiny paragraph somewhere in the, the palace gazette stuck way in the back amongst the heroes of war section or something like that. And nobody ever reads it. And that's the end of that. Now, Mordecai ought to have been rewarded. But the reward is passed over. And the reward is given to someone else. The plot thickens as we move into chapter (laughs) 3. Okay. Yes, the Darth Vader of the Persian Empire is rising. Let's read about it. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadath, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat in honor higher than all the other nobles. Now, wait a minute. Who was the guy that just saved the king's life in the verse before? Mordecai. Mordecai is the servant of the king. He does a good deed. And he gets written up in the, in the gazette. Whoop-dee-doo. And Haman, we don't see any reason. There's no biblical reason. He's just, oh, well, the king just said, oh, I like Haman. I'm going to make him chief executor of my whole, whole country. And, you, and you're, the readers kind of let go and like, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Like, what's with that? Well, let me tell you something. Life is not fair, is it? You work hard at your job. You please the boss, you get him the coffee, you write up all the good things, you do all that extra work, and the newbie gets promoted above you. What's with that? Sure, he's got some stupid a degree from some college or something, but what in the world? You've been at the company for seven years and this guy get it's not fair. You've been a super really nice guy. You've tried to impress the woman of your dreams. And and what does she do? She goes out and meets this jerk of a guy, and you're like, what's with that? Like, where's the justice? Life is like that. You you study hard, you work hard in school, and you you write an exam. And here's this this you know kid. I remember in high school there was this kid. He was a, he was just a, a stoner. Like he was always at the parties all night long, and he'd write his exams. He's always get he's always get A's. And he'd just be like. What? Where's the justice in this? Like, what in the world? And this is what happens here. Mordecai does this good deed. He's doing all the right things. He's honoring God. Forgotten. Little article in the Gazette. It's just not fair. What gives? Well, you know what? Mordecai is not the only one that felt that way in scriptures. And I believe most of us have felt this way some point in our life where it just doesn't seem fair. And God doesn't seem to be helping us. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm being a good Christian. God's on my side, so where's the evidence of that? It doesn't seem to be any evidence. And uh, the, the writer of Psalm 73 is one of my favorite songs, psalms, actually, because it's so real. It's so gritty. The, the writer says this, uh, When I saw the prosperity of the wicked... They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From the callous hearts comes inequity. Through their evil imaginations, have no limit. They scoff. They speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths, they claim to heaven. Their tongue speaks, takes possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. You might go, like, what does that mean? People turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. You know what that means? People still buy buy the tabloids and love to read all the gossip about those people. That's what that means. That's just my Bill's translation, you know. (laughs) They just love to pick up the tablets and soak it in. I don't know. The tabloids, I mean. And they say, how can God know? Does the Most High know anything? Don't you find that the world talks like that? They're just like, oh, God. I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I have my own rap group, and I sing, and everybody bows down, and worships me, and I don't care anything about God. And they drive around in Rolls Royces and fly jets and, and on and on and on. And you're just like, really? This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree, and they go around assuming wealth. (laughs) I can relate to this guy. (laughs) Sometimes it bugs me too. And look at the verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Okay, tell me you don't feel like that sometimes. Right? The Bible says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, oh, okay, if you say so, Bible. Seems like there's a few people against us sometimes. When I tried to understand all this, the psalm writer says, it troubled me deeply. I think it's okay to be troubled by the wealth of the ungodly. I think it's okay to be troubled by the seemingly carelessness of the people we see uh in the tabloids. I think it's okay to be troubled by that and wonder what in the world and then wonder why some, some honest, good, hard-working Christian gets cancer and dies. Like, what's with that? It doesn't seem fair. But then verse seventeen, the writer of the Psalm says, Till I entered the house of the Lord. Until he went to church. <laughs> and then it all, all became clear to me. It must have had a pastor that was talking about something about how God judges the wicked eventually and how the righteous are saved eventually. Or a priest or somebody. And in fact, he says, if I had spoken out like this, that talking about the wealth of the righteous or the wicked and all this stuff, he says, I would have betrayed the innocent ones. Because you know what? There's a lots of people who think that going after all the bling and going after all the world stuff is the way to go. And I'm telling you, lots of Christian young people are just all into that. And we have to be careful what we say. Because the Bible paints a picture very differently. And that in the end, there is hell to pay, actually. In the end, the believers are taken to glory. In the end, the life lived for God is a blessed life, is a holy life, is a righteous life. And it's a life you can feel good about. Whereas the life lived for wickedness, not so much. Well... It is just unfair at times, and so Mordecai bears the brunt of this unfairness. He's left to, you know, watch watch the gate, I guess, uh, while Haman is raised to uh, power, and everybody's bowing down to to this Haman guy. You know, they're walking down the street. Haman comes out. You know, all proud, and everybody's supposed to bow down to him. You know, it's it's interesting. The king has to make an order, an edict, to make people bow down to Haman. I think the guy was just a nasty guy and people didn't like him. So the king makes an edict. Okay, you got to bow down to this guy. He's my prime minister. So, you know, just do it. So everybody does it except Mordecai. Mordecai just stands there and kind of rolls his eyes. I can imagine. (laughs) And everybody's bowing down. But apparently Haman doesn't notice that Mordecai doesn't bow. He's too, too sure of himself assumes everybody's bowing down but some of Mordecai's friends the people at the at the palace they're like Mordecai you didn't bow you got to bow down what are, what are you doing what are you doing they're they're hassling him they're asking him why why don't you bow down and, and you see what it says that Mordecai says Mordecai says I'm a Jew it's, and you're kind of like so <laughs> you know like how does that explain why you don't bow down to this guy I'm a Jew um, and so the, the friend or the people, they say, Hmm, well, we'll talk to Haman and see what happens then, <laughs> you know, cause they don't like bowing down to this guy. Uh, and so when they see Mordecai not, well, they don't dare not bow down and join Mordecai. So they go, oh, okay, well, let's just get Mordecai in trouble and then see what happens, you know? So they talk to Haman and they say, Haman, so what this Mordecai guy, he, he doesn't bow to you. He doesn't care who you are whenever you pass by. Well, Mordecai, he freaks out. <laughs> he has a, a fit. And uh so you have to wonder, so first of all, why is Haman held in such high regard? And secondly, why is Mordecai not bowed down to him? What what's the deal? Like why is his explanation, well I'm a Jew? why, why is that why is that an explanation of why he doesn't bow down to Mordecai? Uh, to Haman well actually there's two very good reasons why he won't bow down to Mordecai bow, bow down to Haman the the first reason is I'm afraid I'm going to fall in that hole first reason is that um Jews don't bow down to anyone but God alone they worship the Lord God and by bowing down to someone it indicates that you respect and honor and pay homage and maybe worship And so that's one very real possibility, probability. But there's another reason. Uh, And and I think this this comes about, as we start reading this, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. And having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. (sighs) I'm not going to kill just Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Whoa! That's quite a reaction, you know. Some dude's not bowing down to you, and then, oh, I'm going to wipe out all of your people. I'm going to wipe out a whole nation. I'm going to wipe out a, a whole race of the human life because one guy defies me. That doesn't even make sense. Um, and so, what the, the cool part of the story is that you can start peeling off layers and see into the motives of the people as you dig through history. Uh, you remember last week I mentioned how Mordecai's great grandfather's name was Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin. You know who? Has anyone ever heard of a Kish from the tribe of Benjamin? Who is he? Saul's father. Yeah, Saul's father. So there's an. I, I don't think it's the same guy because there's too many years in between. Uh it's about five hundred years in between, so I don't think grand, uh Mordecai's father was that old uh great grandfather. But having the same name and the same tribe probably means that there's some lineage, some connection to uh Kish. And uh so so Mordecai is on sort of Saul's side, but how is Haman described of Hamadath the Agagite? Now, do you remember who Aga, uh, the Agagites are? Agagites? There's Ag, Agag. There's a king of the Malachites. Yes, that's right. I heard someone say it. The king of the Malachites is called Agag. And so if we look back in history, we find out that, um, that the Lord comes to Samuel and says to him, go talk to King Saul because it's time for the uh Amorites, to be wiped out. And so, so. Sam, this is way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel goes to Saul, the king, and he says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them when they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, donkeys, everything. Just wipe them all out. So, so what's this about the Amalekites uh, waylaying the Israelites? Well, so we've got to go even further back into history if I know what happened there. You see, right after the people of Israel escaped the Egyptians, God saves them miraculously, then all of a sudden this heathen group of people go, hey, look at these people wandering around the desert. They've come to invade our land. Let's go wipe them out. And the Amalekites go and attack the Israelites. It's the first thing that we see. Uh, the first great disaster after the Israelites come out of Egypt. And so the Amalekites are fighting Israel. You probably know the story because, uh, Moses says to Joshua, well, go and lead the army out there and go attack and, you know, fight, fight off the Amalekites. Amalekites. And Moses goes up on the top of the hill and he stretches out, the, he has the staff of God in his hand and he raises his hands and whenever he raises his hands to bless the people, the Israelites are winning but ever, whenever his hands get tired the Amalekites start taking over and so her and um, uh, what's the other guy um, Caleb Joshua, no not Joshua Aaron, thank you somebody knows their Bible <laughs> Uh, they, they help hold up his hands so that they win the battle. And then at the end of the battle, the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure Joshua hears of it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalekit, Amalek, Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is My Banner. And he said, Because the hands were lifted against the throne of the Lord, God will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So then fast forward back to Saul's day. Saul is told, Okay, go wipe out the Amalekites. Wipe out everything. So Saul takes 200,000 men and 10,000 men from from Judah. And he goes out and he marches on to the, uh, the whole region of the Amalekites. And he starts wiping everybody out. But guess what? He leaves one guy alive, along with a bunch of sheep and stuff. And you know the story. Samuel gets, gets, hears from God that uh, Saul has not been obedient. But guess what the king's name is? Agag. It's Agag. And so Saul spares the life of Agag. Later, later on he's killed. But it seems like from this one man came a whole other tribe. And guess who's part of that tribe? Haman, Haman the Agagite. And guess what? These two groups of people have never forgiven each other. It's kind of like Israel and Palestine, you know, the whole thing. I mean, it just goes on for centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh, it's funny that, that you know, uh, the Palestine, not funny, but the Gaza Strip in Israel today is the same area as the Philistines were. Same battle going on four thousand years after this battle between, you know, uh Goliath and David. I mean it's it's insane. These these hatreds run deep in people. They just hate each other just because they're from other tribe. This is this is uh it's crazy. There's a thousand year old feud between Mordecai and Haman. They're not gonna solve it by killing off one guy. So Haman now says, oh, okay, now I've got the power. You know, back in Saul's day, Saul had the power and tried to wipe out my people. Now it's my turn to wipe out these Jews. And so it's this age-old battle. And so we have this lowly Jewish doorman, and we have the powerful uh, prime minister of the earth's largest empire. Who's going to win this battle? Mordecai says, I'm a Jew. Jews don't bow to anyone but God, and especially not to Agagites. Right? And Haman says, Well, yeah, we'll see about that. I'm going to just kill off everybody. I'm not just going to kill you, I'm going to kill everybody. So the lines are drawn in the sand. Who's going to win? So in verse 7, we read that, uh, that Haman decides to, to seek the power of the gods that be, I guess. I don't really know why he does this. But he takes lots and he starts casting lots. And he starts going month by month casting lots until he gets a good month. And it ends up being the month of Puran. No, not month. A month of... Uh, what? Thank you. It's up there, right? Uh, yeah. well, on Adar, right. So, but it's interesting that he's actually doing the casting of lots in the month of um, Nisan. What's the month of Nisan? The month of Nisan is the month of the Passover. This is the month that celebrates the rescuing of God of, of the children of God, by God, from Egypt. Great rescue. And so they're, that's when they're celebrating. So it's kind of interesting. You know, the Bible says the lot is thrown into lap, but every, it's every decision is from the Lord. And so God is actually watching over this throwing of lot by this evil man and picking the date. Um, and so Haman says to King Xerxes, "There's this certain people. Don't you love that? There's certain people. He doesn't name who they are. There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom, who keep themselves separate. They're like, they're different than everybody else. You ever heard that statement? There's a certain people. They're different. Yeah. In our country, we have a certain people. They're called the unborn." And they're different, apparently. They don't get the rights of everyone else. Their customs are different from all those of other people. My own pers- sorry, I interjected my own personal frustration with our country. Anyways, they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So Mordecai, or, or Haman is having this beef with Mordecai. He decides to, take his, to ratchet it up to his beef with the whole nation of Israel. But when he talks to the king, it's all about, oh, the king, you know, there's these, these terrible people. There are certain people. They don't obey the king. That's not true. Mordecai didn't obey the king's command to bow down to Haman. Not all the people, just one guy. Uh, it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. In other words, Haman's saying, I know what's good for you, so listen to me. Oh, those are scary words, aren't they? (laughs) It's not in the king's best interest. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I'll give 10,000 talents of silver into the king's administers for the royal treasury. $10,000 Ten thousand dollars of silver that, you know what how much that is? That's three hundred and seventy five tons. <laughs> this is truckloads of of silver. That's crazy. Certain people seems insidious, you know, unlawful. So, so what does the king do? He oh okay, takes off his signet ring, gives it to Haman, son of Hamadath, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Ah another line has been added to his title. Keep the money, King says to Haman, and do the people as you please wow what what happened when there was a plot against the king? There was an investigation. Is there an investigation here? King doesn't care he doesn't give a rip. oh yeah, whatever. my new prime minister he'll he'll look after everything. Do whatever you want i don't care. I, <laughs> This guy's just basically a drunkard partier, I think. (laughs) Like, it's pathetic, really. It's just like, okay, total disregard for his subjects. The only thing he ever investigates is when, you know, threats come to his own life, but he doesn't investigate when a whole people group are being threatened. And so on the 13th day of the month, of the, of the first month, the royal secretaries are summoned, they gather them all up, and they send them out to all the provinces, they, they write letters in all the, to all the provinces about the Jewish people, saying, you know, just wipe them out on the 13th day of Adar, you're gonna wipe them out. And that's, uh, and so they send a copy to everyone, and the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's man, and the edict was issued in the c- citadel of Susa, and the king, I love this, or love it. It's crazy. Verse 15. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. <laughs> the king and Haman, they don't care at all. These are evil people. This is an evil empire. with No concern at all for all these people that they've just just edicted their deaths. No conscience. Don't even have. Don't even realize that they've just condemned the man who had saved the king's life. They just condemned the queen. The king doesn't even know. The Jews are doomed. The Death Star is on its way. Da, 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 da. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> Swindoll says, "Do you not understand what God? You do not have to understand." what God is doing. He sees the forest and all the trees. All you see is the trees that are nearby you. You don't have the big picture. And God calls us to trust him even when the death star is coming, even when evil is taking over, even when it just seems like Christians are being shoved into a corner and forgotten. God is still in control. Now, it's hard to imagine a a genocide planned like this. Like, how evil is this king to decide that he's just going to wipe out a people without even investigating? But guess what? Is it so hard to understand when you look around our world today? When you look at Auschwitz? Hmm. Seems like Haman wasn't the only one who decided to get rid of the Jews. When you look at Rwanda, Kosovo, Sudan, ISIS. Are you surprised? Sinful humans are still sinful humans. Evil is still rampant, it still goes on. But God has a plan behind the scenes. When things go south, we get targeted by evil people and we start asking, what is God doing? Why is he doing this? Has God lost his mind? That's what we start thinking. Perish the thought. God knows what he's doing. Our devil, our adversary, goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. But God knows what he's doing. And God is placing the pieces on your chessboard. of your life, the way he has determined. And it might look like you're sacrificing your queen or whatever you're doing, I don't know, but God's got a plan. And it might look crazy, but it's going to come. The reality of evil confronts us every day. Men and women commit terrible acts of violence, degradation, all kinds of things. News stories from all over the world are filled with moral filth and tragedy, Oddly enough, many people blame God for what's going on. That's not God's fault. It's human's fault. We live in a cursed world. Is this really my father's world? When tyrants like Haman come to power, really? How are Christians to act in these ungodly times with these ungodly acts going on all around us? Interesting thing is, the central message of the Bible is that God wishes to redeem mankind out of all of that horror, out of all of that degradation, out of all of that uh, violence. God's desire is to pull us out. And we have an example of a man like the Apostle Paul to give us guidance when things go south for us. Because I'm telling you, things went south for the Apostle Paul. He, seemingly even worse than for Mordecai and Esther. I mean, it's, this is what, what, how Paul describes his life. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Five times. Can you imagine what his back looked like? That would be just, his back would be just shredded five times over. That's terrible. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I mean, they left him for... They dragged him out of the city and just left him as refuge in the, in the garbage pile. They thought he was dead. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked. A day in the night I was adrift on the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brother, in toil and hardship and through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure... Yeah, he wasn't living in a palace. (laughs) It was pretty sad. (laughs) Nevertheless, Paul persevered in the power of the Spirit. And he writes this in Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He he wasn't just concerned about his thorn in the flesh and the messenger of Satan. He had all these other things, all these other disasters in his life. And he goes, "Ah, that's nothing. That's not worth worth spitting at. We're going to be in glory someday. It's going to be awesome. What an attitude. Is that your attitude? God had to do something special with Paul. God had to literally chain him to his desk. Literally, he was put in prison, chained to you. You might feel like you're chained to your desk, but Paul literally was chained to his desk. And what did he do there? He wrote half of the New Testament. What God, what men thought they were stopping the gospel Men thought they were putting a stop to this crazy Paul who's just creating chaos in all the cities where he went. People are flocking to him, listening to him. If God didn't chain him to his desk, guess what? He would still be out in the courtyards and the and the, the byways and the highways bidding people to come in. He'd still be preaching on the street all the time. But instead, he was captured. He was put in prison and he was chained to a desk. Oh, what's he going to do now? Well, I guess... I'll write letters and we have those letters see god's in control and when it seems like everything's going south and when it seems like everything's gone wrong for paul god is still in control and He is bringing about his own devices and he's changing things for his own purposes and we can look at all through the bible we can find joseph and joseph at the end of his life says to his brothers you meant it for evil but god meant it for good God changed the circumstances. We meet David, you know, he's, he's being hunted around like a dog by King Saul. And then the opportunity comes to kill King Saul. And Job says to him, ah, oh, God has given your enemy into your hand. It's time to wipe out the king. And David says, no, 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 I'm not going to lift up my hand against the Lord's anointing. And he doesn't do it. And so he spares Saul's life. And so we, we see all through the Bible Jonathan was ordered not to eat uh, eat anything till the break of day, yet he he didn't hear the command and, and ate some honey and and God used it for blessing, and his life was almost killed by King Saul, but God spares him. And so over and over again we see circumstances that God intervenes for the good what looked terrible for the people involved. It was no fun for David running around getting chased around by King Saul. But he trusted the God who said, you will be king someday. And then we have the ultimate betrayal. Jesus is having the last supper, the supper that this really exemplifies. And he's sitting down with his disciples. And he's washing their feet. And guess whose feet Jesus washes? Judas's feet, the man who's going to betray him. And Jesus, as he's as he's sharing in this meal, he lifts up the bread and he, and he says to them, you know, one of you is going to betray me this very night. And and they're all like, well, who who's going to do that? Who's going? To, not me, is it? This is me, Lord. And he says, you know, it's the one I give this piece of bread to. And he gives the piece of bread to Judas. What's Jesus doing? He's trying to save Judas. And he, and he says to him, you know, like something about how terrible will be for the one who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better if he wasn't born. He's still trying to save Judas. And when Judas walks up to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he gives him a kiss, what does Jesus say? Do what you come for, friend. Friend. He calls him Friend. Is evil winning? Jesus says, you know, like, why have you come with swords and clubs? I've been preaching every day in the synagogues. But this is the hour of Satan. And so, you know, here we have God's unfolding of redeem, redemption's plan. But he's using hatred, anger, jealousy. Satan has come as a messenger and, and come right inside of Judas to betray Jesus. All these horrible things But God is using the very betrayal of Jesus to do what? To save the world. And then Jesus is taken away. He's beaten and he's whipped and he's, he's, uh, he's finally nailed to a cross and is left hanging there. And everybody says, well, that's the end of that teacher. And ultimately, it seems like Satan wins. Satan makes his big day. Don't you love uh, C.S. Lewis when he talks about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you know, and the big table, and and Satan's having a party. Woohoo! We won! We got him finally! We nailed him down! We're going to kill the the lion, you know, the lion of Judah. We're going to wipe him out. And that's what it seems like. It seems like like evil has finally won. (laughs) Well, we all know the story. God used that very event, that very wicked, evil, humiliating event to save us all, to purchase our salvation. What an awesome thing. And all we need to do is put our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is really the celebration of the communion table. It's celebrating the fact that God turns Satan's plans on its head. That God is the one who is really in control, and this really is my Father's world. And there's nothing Satan can do about it. And Satan can do his worst, take the Son of God and nail him to a cross, crucify him, torture him, and kill him, and God still has a plan. What about your life? Things can go terribly, terribly wrong in your life. But God still has a plan. His plan is to redeem you. His plan is to redeem the world through you. So as we partake of this communion meal, let's remember that God is in control. And that he even uses the wickedness of men to bring about his purposes.